0: Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Well, amen. What a great reminder. Thank you, uh, from our own version of the three tenors. We've got them here at Bible Baptist Church, but what a great reminder of the wonderful truth that the Bible stands no book like it, written on three continents by 40 men, one author, the author of course, the Holy Spirit, and every word inspired and good for our learning and encourage us to sing about it and to enjoy its precepts this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we are in our series about called to be saints. Of course, the church at Corinth had its many issues with sin and immaturity, and Paul writes a letter to encourage them on to greater faithfulness. This morning's message is finding true wisdom. Finding true wisdom. Last week uh, we, we answered really three foundational a couple of weeks ago we answered three foundational questions from the first chapter of 1 Corinthians the first one that we looked at just by way of uh, re- remembering here a little bit was the question that Paul raised in chapter 1 and verse 20 Paul asked this where are the wise of this world in other words what has been the net effect of thousands or hundreds of years of philosophy and intelligence and culture of this world certainly Corinth was a city that was known for its refined culture and arts and wisdom in terms of the world's wisdom. So he says, where have all these debates gotten us? Where have all these years of, of trying to come up with man's wisdom for answers to life? Where has it gotten us? And the answer, of course, is this. It's gotten us nowhere, really. Oh, we have some more creature comforts and the inventions have helped us with our life, perhaps a little bit but are we any more moral than we were hundreds of years ago, any less sinful? And Paul says the answer, of course, is no. The streets of Corinth, if I may remind you, are much like the streets here in America today, daily filled with the base, the wicked, the evil, perverted, and immoral. There has been found no answer for sinful hearts in the, in the midst of all the philosophies that are uh, proffered by the world. In fact, Dragon Con no doubt started at court. I don't know. But we're not any more closer to God than we were years ago. No thanks to all the philosophies of the world. And then he asked the question uh, that follows. Why aren't there many, not any, but why aren't there many wise men of this world that are finding Christ? Chapter 1, verse 26. And the answer is what? Because the gospel is offensive. Have you noticed that when you try to share the gospel with people? It's not easily embraced by the world. To the lost man, the claim that there's only one God, how narrow-minded that is. And then to the folks that are in their natural state, that all men are sinners, that everyone, and that all of our goodness is as filthy rags to God, that is an offensive statement. And it's salvation Here's another thing that people get tripped up over who don't know Christ. That offensive is exclusively, or excuse me, that that the message of the cross and salvation is exclusively through the sacrifice of one man who claimed to be God on a bloody cross called Calvary in the land of Israel. How obscure, how again, how narrow-minded, how simplistic How base is that? Sounds ridiculous. If you've never been illuminated and drawn to Christ, Jesus himself said this, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. And what? Few there be that find it. Sometimes we picture heaven as this place where there'll be millions and millions, and certainly there well may be. But I would remind you that when The first uh, catastrophe hit the earth and the earth was flooded. There wasn't a long line of folks ready to get into the ark after the preaching of Noah for over a hundred years, only his family. Few there be that find wise men of this world are captivated by two demonic and natural blinders. Number one, salvation just can't be totally free. No, I need to somehow add to that wonderful gift by something that I do. I've got to participate in some way. And secondly, Jesus Christ, that bleeding sacrifice on a Roman cross, submitting himself to death, could not be God for no, especially in the Corinthian mind, no God who occupied such riches and such station as heaven would come to this earth What God in his right mind would do that for the cause of sinners? And then we answered a third question. So what are we to do about this seemingly offensive message as believers? What should we then do to make it more attractive to the world? How should we dress it up? How should we change it and modify it so that the world would somehow embrace it. And of course, the answer that Paul gives in, in chapter two is that, as for me, I've determined, verse two, to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he said, I'm not going to accommodate or change it or embellish it or refine it. No, the gospel redefined is simply not the gospel at all. The gospel is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can't add to it. We can't uh, modify it. And by the way, the message of the cross is not that Jesus came to help us in any way with our self-esteem or to save the planet or to save the hungry. There's some good causes out there, but God came to save his people from their sin. And that is the base of of what the cross was all about. Jesus died for the unjust that he might bring us to God and we're to preach the wisdom of God which is, Paul says, foolishness to this world. I was sitting beside a college boy on a plane uh, on our way to Israel. This was nearly 30 years ago, my first visit to Israel. And I decided to try to witness to this young man who could I could tell uh, just by our our, just kind of our small talk that he was on his way back home, and an Israeli, and he knew good English, and so I decided to chat with him about the claims of Christ and the gospel and who Jesus was, and I brought up the subject of Christ, and of course he knew that name, being a good Jewish boy, and I asked him, who do you think Jesus was? Oh, he had all kinds of answers for that. He was a good man, good teacher, great prophet in Israel. And I went on to ask him this: Do you think he was the Messiah? Oh no, he said. And he said, I don't really believe that he rose again from the dead, and he was just one of the many great teachers we've had in our country. And so I, I, I just became silent for a moment. I looked him in the eye. I can't remember his name, but I looked at him. I said, Now, if he wasn't the Messiah, what are you doing? about your sin. And he got real quiet looked at me and said, sir, I perceive you're a preacher. (laughs) And I thought about the woman at the well, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You're asking me about what to do about my sin and I don't have an answer for that because if there's no Christ in the equation, there's no answer for sin. Paul said, I've come to Corinth bringing the only message that saves. Amen? The message of the cross. So this morning, we're going to look at the title here, the topic of finding true wisdom. The first thing we note is that uh, Paul says here that, uh, in fact, we ought to just read these verses together, chapter two, to set the context for this morning's thoughts from scripture. For I determine uh, excuse me. Back to verse one. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, in contrast to the many philosophers of the day, the orators of the day. I came declaring unto you the testimony of God, the gospel. For I determined to not to not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or mature, or here the idea is those who are complete in Christ, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor nor the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God and the mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God hath before ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God." For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of that man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but that which is... the But which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? I love the last phrase, but we have the mind of Christ. So it is. Paul makes the defense here of true wisdom in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, what is it that we need to know? What, what principles can we take home with us by our study from this wonderful chapter? The first thing we need to know is that the message has great power to change and transform. The message has great power to transform lives. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, especially verses 4 and 5, was not with enticing words, of words that would tickle the ear, that would turn heads by its great articulation. No, it didn't come that way, but it came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Sometimes when we think of powerful preachers, we think in terms of those with deep voices and great art, articulation, that, that they can woo and wow a crowd because of how they put a sermon together and the great explosive style. How many of you think of some preachers that you've known in your lifetime that <clears throat> really have that wonderful uh, sense of delivery that just captivates you? Have you? Can you think of some? I can. My mother used to have the radio on all the time in the kitchen, and some of these preachers <clears throat> had tremendous voices that they didn't have to water down with water. I remember Brother Roloff, uh, she'd have that on, the K- station was KGRG, and I listened to him preach, and I was very impressed with that. I, we've all, I suppose in this church, enjoyed the powerful style of a Tom Farrell, studying history a little bit. You uh, know others that were had forceful deliveries. I think of George Whitfield, who without amplification could actually be heard for one mile. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Sometimes when we think of the power of preaching, we think wrongly of the delivery of it. Paul's not speaking of that. Please understand biblical hermeneutics, that is the science of putting together a sermon and the study of Biblical homiletics, that is how it's presented, are wonderful classes to take, and I encourage every young preacher to enjoy those courses of study in college or wherever. I think it makes sense, don't you, to, uh, to, to study about the text and the context, the larger context, the preaching from that, to exposit the Word, to structure the flow of the sermon so that it comes from the Word itself, so we're not making stuff up. I think that's important. And Paul isn't necessarily saying that I don't have any of those skills or abilities. He he wasn't a shoddy preacher. But he isn't necessarily saying that. He's he's just simply saying my style was not explosive or impressive. My manner of preaching has been called, in fact, if you study 2 Corinthians 10, you find out that when Paul came to town, here's what they said, his letters... (laughs) His letters are powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is, you remember that verse, contemptible. In other words, unrefined, almost simplistic. His speech, by some estimations, Paul was a much better writer than he was a preacher. And yet he says, that's not my goal to impress you with my oratory. Rather, he says, I want you to know the wisdom from God is powerful to transform lives. Paul, I would think if we had the privilege of seeing Paul come and preach this morning, as he came in, we would be more tempted to grab him a wheelchair than we would to usher him forward. What did Paul, you suppose, look like? Paul says later that he's been beaten five times by the whips of the Jews. That is 40 times save one. 195 uh, times. What does a body look like that's been whipped and scarred up? The lash of the Jewish cat of nine tails or the Roman cat of nine tails. And three times he says, I've been beaten with rods. Once I've been stoned and left for dead. Three times I've been in shipwrecks, and night and day, drifting about perhaps on a timber of the, the wreckage of a boat. No wonder they said of Paul when he approached to preach. His bodily presence was weak. He could barely, by some accounts, see his own writing. He had to be helped often by a secretary when he was writing the scriptures. Some said he couldn't even see well or had some other infirmity, a thorn in the flesh on top of everything else that God had given him. So when Paul approached the sacred desk, he said, it's not, Corinthians understand as you debate over who's the best preacher, it's not about the delivery or the style. It's about the powerful message that changes a life. It's amazing that Paul was alive at all by about 50 A.D. when he started the church in Corinth. But Paul gloried not in his strengths but in his weaknesses. He knew something, that his weakness was the very canvas of God's display of glory. When I am weak, he said, then I don't embellish the message in such a way that it will be lost, the simplicity of it, the Christ-centeredness of it, Often, perhaps, you can think of a Christmas present you received where the wrapping in the box was more valuable than what was inside, more beautiful. And that's not the sense of what Paul said. He would simply come and give the unvarnished gospel, the simple truth, and it landed upon the ears of sinful Corinthians like a hammer that convicted them where they realized there's no hope for our sinful life in oratory and philosophy and strange mystic religions of the Gnostics. But here's a message about a man who claimed to be God and was God because he died, as Paul explained the gospel, on a cross for my sins, paying the penalty of it. And now, if I receive by faith the finished work of this one Jesus of Nazareth, I can know what it is to be forgiven. Do you remember when your life Was transformed by the gospel? Hopefully it still is. But do you remember the moment you got saved? Think back about that heavy burden of guilt and sin that was lifted. Maybe you're here and you've never sensed that. Only Jesus can save. I remember as a kid, as a heart full of sin coming to my mom and dad's bedroom late at night. We were talking about this because my mother just celebrated, uh, actually today she's celebrating her 92nd birthday and, and we were just zooming this, of course, a group kind of video call and we went around the circle and each one of us as kids now grown, not grown up, but we're grown, All told mom how much or what special thing that she meant to us. And all of us, without exception, said thank you for giving to us living water and leading us to the place where we put our faith early in life. The finished work of Christ come. Paul would say in the marketplace, often he would yell out, I'm sure, the truth. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy Corinthians, bruised and broken by your sin, by the fall. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is willing. He is able. Come to Jesus, doubt no more. The people would come. The prostitutes from the temple of Artemis would come. The, the drunks from the town square would come those that were lost and trapped and their sin would come. And many of them were finding out for the first time that there's a message that saves. And Paul said, there's power in this. The message is powerful to save. And by the way, when you get saved, you're not going to get this, I don't think you're going to get this wonderful chill that runs up and down your spine. That's not the power I'm talking about. Just the load of your sin removed the stain of guilt And that silent transformation, that peace that comes in your heart, that you are secure and saved because of what Christ did for you at the cross. I love that song. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. On that day, he met the need of my soul. Number five of chapter two, verse five says that your faith should not stand in my outline, or in the wisdom of authority of men, but in the power of God to say. What a great thought that is. Secondly, true wisdom is hidden from natural eyes. We see that point clearly expressed here. In my speech, my preaching was not with enticing words, but that your faith would stand in the wisdom of men, not the power of God. In fact, as we go on, we see that this This wonderful wisdom is hidden, uh, verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. It doesn't mean Paul, uh, like the hidden piece of a puzzle, was hiding something or that God is hiding something from the lost. He says, "...even the hidden wisdom which God has ordained before the world unto our glory." It goes on to say, "...which none of the princes of this world, the kings, knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." The point here is simply this, that the natural man, this wisdom, this gospel is often hidden uh, and he says, we speak these things to those that are perfect, those that are saved and they understand, those that are complete in Christ. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom uh, that God ordained before the world for our glory. Who is this? Who is this message hidden from? What is What is Paul saying? Is it something like we have to kind of go through a lot of hoops to get there and have to study deeply, go to Bible college? What is Paul saying? Why is this message hidden? Well, two things are in mind here when he says this. Number one, the wisdom of God concerning the coming of Christ and his work at Calvary, the death, burial, and resurrection was largely missed by the world. Not because God is covering it up, but because men are unwilling to believe it. Paul doesn't say, you know, I'm just going to bring you this enigma, this puzzle, this mystery. If if you're smart enough and if you're, you know, if you're really in tune with the spiritual world enough, then voila, the stars will align and you'll get this chill and this deep understanding of the God. No, he's not saying that. He's saying the reason it's covered and hidden is because you have no heart or eyes to see it. God is not willing that any should perish. It is will, Ephesians chapter 5 says, to make known his will to all of us. But none of the princes, the mystery of the church would be another perhaps understanding here of this. It's hidden. Even the mystery of the church was hidden to many. But certainly the mystery of the gospel is hid the most because no one has an appetite to believe or to follow or to learn and become saved. The mystery of the gospel. And he goes on to give an illustration in verse 8 of the princes of this world. If they knew who God was, who Christ was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There are many... Uh, kings and princes of the world that got close to Christians and got close to Christ. Can you imagine uh, one day the judgment seat when they realized that this one they crucified was indeed the king of glory? Can you imagine? Well, here he is saying this. Think about Abimelech close to Abraham and Pharaoh who was close to Moses. Nebuchadnezzar close to Daniel. Naaman close to that unnamed servant girl. And Elijah, Darius, close to others, the prophets of his day, Cyrus, all taste, Felix, Herod, Pilate, all came close to God and had they realized, and remember the statement of one, uh, almost, Paul, almost, you persuade me to be a Christian, to come that close to God and not to taste of eternal life not to receive the free gift that God offers in Christ to all one day, not just one day, but throughout eternity in hell, will be the greatest regret of your life. Had they known who I was, they would not have crucified me. In other words, it wasn't because of the lack of opportunity that this message is hid, but lack of will and willingness to receive it. And The Lord himself would say that of the Pharisees, you are blind leaders of the blind." Spiritually speaking, had they known and believed, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Seeing, they did not see, and hearing, they heard not. Matthew chapter 13 tells us the leaders of the Jews were spiritually blind, and political leaders were blind to divine wisdom. The wisdom, James says, that is from above is not earthly, it's not sensual. I wrote an email this week. This is kind of a little bit off the track, but I wrote an email uh, to Raphael Warnock, our senator from Georgia who professes to be a, a, a Christian, professes to be a preacher. And uh, I asked him to be careful about the Equality Act, which is really bad policy. It, under the guise of, or the false cloak of non-discrimination forces schools and businesses to hire and endorse those whose lives are in a clear opposition To the biblical position on homosexuality and gender identity. He is a co sponsor of the bill, and he assured me by by way of response that this will not force churches to operate against their conscience on the issue of gender identity. I wrote back and said a Christian who is protected in the pew ought to be protected in public as well, the public square. There shouldn't be a different set of rules. Our convictions don't stop at the door. And I said, Mr. Warnock, of all people, as a professing preacher, you ought to know that conscience and the scriptures ought to be our guide. And what's right in church ought to be right outside of church. It is the so- but true wisdom, true wisdom is truly hid from those who are spiritually blind. Have you ever thought about this? I have. Often I've thought about this because God called me uh, to be a preacher. Often I've thought about this. You think about this free gift of grace that is offered to all men, the gospel. And you think about this. Why is it that a simple message where all we need to do is humble ourselves and understand we can't save ourselves, come to one who's already provided the penalty or the payment of the penalty of our sin for us, at the cross of Calvary, understanding that he is God, that message where we can simply bow our knee and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Will you save me for all of eternity? I receive now the free gift of eternal life. That's a simple message, isn't it? Can you imagine why then is it that everyone doesn't just flock to bow their heads and pray that prayer to receive Christ, to submit to him as their master and Lord. Why is it that not everybody is saved? Because there's an unwillingness to believe that because to, to believe that he's God places him in authority over us and it places our sinfulness before us. And most folks don't want to really admit that they can't get to heaven on the backs of their own good deeds. And so it is. Verse 9 is often misapplied. But as it is written, "I hath not seen, nor ear heard, and neither has entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that we think this is heaven. And there, I think, by its broadest application could include heaven. But you could say, but the natural man has not seen. The natural ear has not heard, neither has it entered into his heart the things which God has prepared for him. It's so sad, isn't it, to to reach out to a relative for years and years, pleading with them to come to Christ and saying, listen, don't miss out on heaven because of your stubbornness or because of your sense of rebellion or grabbing onto some sin in your life and not being willing to just come and admit who you are before him and what he's done for you. God's truth simply is not, it's hidden from natural eyes. It's not observable by human intelligence or reason. God hath revealed unto us the saved by his spirit. When Peter said to the Lord, remember he responded to that question, who, who do men say that I am? Remember that? And um, Peter quips, well, Lord, uh, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember what the Lord said to him? Peter, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. I'm looking this morning that a group of folks, largely who I believe, were are, are believers. There was a day when the Spirit of God struck you with the truth of the gospel and the truth about your incapacity to save yourself. And you got saved. That, my friends, was not the work of a sermon or a powerful preacher. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. You got saved. The, mat- the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Verse 14, don't try to do the Spirit's work. You just preach the gospel. You just proclaim it and pray that he would do his job to open the eyes of the lost, to illuminate his wisdom and his word to the natural mind, to bring to light those that sit in darkness. Number one, the message is powerful. The wisdom of God is hidden from natural minds. And thirdly, the Spirit is available. The Spirit is available to the receptive. We see this again in the truth here found in verse 12. Now we have received. <laughs> I like that. We've embraced. We have uh, taken in. We have been saved. Not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Isn't it wonderful that in our lives as believers, that God imparts to us the Spirit of God living within us, and He is the guide that opens the truth. Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. When you open this book as a believer, you ought to always breathe that prayer, Lord, Holy Spirit, lead me into truth. You're the author of the book, and and Paul uses an illustration. He says, nobody knows you like you do. You see that Listed for us in verse 11, what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him. What a great illustration. I may look at you this morning and think I know <laughs> what you're thinking. Maybe you're lost in tomorrow land, Labor Day land. I don't know. Thinking about tomorrow. But when, you're looking, when I'm looking at you as I'm preaching, I'm telling you, you look saintly. You do. But I don't know what's going on inside your brain. You do. And the Lord says this, no one knows the mind of God except God. And here's the declaration of God, right? He's given us his revealed truth. This is how we know what's God's thing. Never say, you know, I've been talking to God and God's been talking to me. He's just been revealing to me. No, this is how God speaks to the Christian today. But the Spirit of God applies this and brings it to life in our lives. He makes the truth real and living to us. So some years ago, it was a fad to hang pictures up in our houses and in restaurants. I don't know what they called them. Bunts of little squiggly lines. Some of you remember these? Um, shame on you if you had one of these because I never could get them very well. But they, I don't know what they call them, but you couldn't see an image at all unless you got real close and squinted your eyes and spent about 10 minutes waiting for whatever the, the butterfly or the elephant or whatever to kind of slowly come at you from this. Some of you look at me, I've never heard of this. Some of you remember those days. I I, I was a kid that never could get those very well, and, and somebody would walk by and like, Two, two seconds, say, well, yeah, see that elephant? Just look at it. See the elephant? And I would go. Back up, you know. I couldn't get it. Once in a while, I would see something. I don't think it was ever an elephant, but I'd see something. And the truth is, God has given to us not only the clear instruction of his heart, of his heart to ours, but he's given us the Holy Spirit by which... These things are illuminated to us. That's the point of verse 12. God's not trying to hide anything from you. As a believer, he's given us the spirit which is of God that we might know the things which are, how are they given to us? Freely given. You don't have to be confused, but understanding what the will of God is. In a couple of months or less than that, I guess it's a about a month and a half or so, uh, uh, we're going to hopefully take a group of folks to, uh, if if uh, this whole COVID waxing and waning allows us to, uh, up to sight and sound in Pennsylvania. One of the stops along the way uh, will be the Gettysburg Battlefield, where for a couple of hours, uh, I'm going to pull the van over, Lord willing, and I've asked for a historian there, there at the museum at the Gettysburg Battlefield to give us a guided tour of the battlefield. And this is a really a pivotal battle in American history, a Civil War, where uh, Meade and Lee, right, uh, these two generals fought it out. Many lives were lost. But I, I got to thinking, we're going to get a guy that's assigned to us from the museum to drive our van to the battle, different battle spots there in Gettysburg. It'd be a cool thing, I thought. So I've hired him to do that and to give us his insights. but, but, But imagine this, if General Lee somehow could come back to life and sit in our van, or Meade could come back to life and tell us the story as they saw it. I bet our two spots that we have left would fill up real quick. That was, a, that was a little commercial. Now, now this. hold on, because this principle is so important. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. The architect of the world, the architect of redemption... <laughs> The architect of, not only the architect, but the provider of, the the one who wrote it all, who loves man enough to provide for us a redeemer, the one who has the grand scope of history in his heart and the culmination of it being the gathering of his saints together with him in glory from the inception to the culmination, the consummation, this great God has told us as believers, you don't have to go to the philosophers or the newsstand or turn on the or listen to the six o'clock, whatever news it is. You have the architect of it all. You have the Word of God and you have the Spirit of God who was there (laughs) and is there and continually is the great I am, the one that knows it all. He's living within you to bring to life and to bring to light the truth. Of the scriptures. He's living within you. So as you study it, what are we to do? We're to ask God. You are there. You are here. And you will be there at the end. So bring to life the scriptures. Bring it to truth and life in my own heart. And so God relishes in doing that. And sometimes I think sometimes we just get in here and we try to scratch our heads. Let's ask God who authored this wonderful book. The men sang about it as we began this morning. And I think it's a wonderful thing when we can enjoy the the leadership and the guiding of the Spirit of God in this wonderful process. Let this mind, the chapter ends with this. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Answer, well, no one really knows what's in God's mind. He's revealed what's there. That who's who's available to instruct the Lord? <laughs> this is kind of a uh, a rebuttal or a rebuke to the many philosophies of the day that claimed to express the mind of the spirit world. Who knows who knows how to instruct God? No one. But we have the declaration, the inspired word, and we have the mind. Of Christ. Philippians 2 5 says, Let this mind be in you. You see, it's not just information that's transferred to us from God's mind to ours. The point is Christ's likeness. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and what? Who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We have the mind of Christ within us. It produces transformation that exceeds information. The Corinthians needed that, that mind so that they were not so carnal, so divisive, so ungodly. Christ humbled himself to serve us for our good and this church here at Corinth needed not just to know the will of God, or to know how salvation is expressed through the person of God, but they needed to become like God. May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day by His power and love controlling all I do and say. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.